This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, a journalist's personal details are made public after she criticised Centrelink. Facebook has finally admitted it's not just a tech company and we're going to take a look at a German startup pioneering a new way to engage with readers. Joining me is ABC reporter Sarah White. Hello. Hi, hi, Sarah. And in the studio, Joe Lennon, whose writing has appeared in publications such as The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. Hi, Joe. Hi. Economist and writer Andy Fox must have had a nasty shock on Sunday morning when she woke up to discover a Fairfax journalist, Paul Malone, had published a column detailing her personal dealings with Centrelink. It all began when Fox wrote an article that was also published in Fairfax Papers on February 6 that described her experience trying to resolve a debt with Centrelink that in fact belonged to her ex-partner. The article illustrated the nightmarish reality of dealing with Centrelink and while she eventually managed to resolve her issue, she concluded that, quote, many of my fellow Centrelink clients will lack the assertiveness, confidence, energy and literacy I used to fight for my case. The errors in their debt will not be found. Money will be taken wrongfully from some of the very poorest people in this country. I guarantee you they are terrified. Paul Malone's column, published on February 26, was written in response to Fox, titled Centrelink is an easy target for complaints, but there are two sides to every story. The article began with the question, could it be that sometimes the agency is being unfairly castigated? The article went on to describe details of Fox's case, information that had in fact come to Malone directly from Centrelink. Centrelink's parent department, the Department of Human Services, has confirmed the release of Fox's details to Malone, saying that it had the legal right to correct the record. Now, I want to structure this conversation in two parts. Let's first look at the legality of the actual data release, and then we'll talk about the ethics of the story. Joe, you are also a lawyer. We'll start with you. Is this legal, what the uh, Department of Human Services has done? Right. So like many people, I was intrigued when I, I saw that this release had happened and I, I did a bit of looking around. It seems that there are a few different bases on which the department has sought to justify this release. What it hasn't done is release the advice that it has received from lawyers about the release of this information. So we're not yet in a position to say exactly what their thinking is. But it seems that they're relying on, in particular, a provision of 
social security legislation that seems to give quite broad power to the secretary of that department to release information. However, that's required to be where it is deemed necessary in, quote, the public interest. So as you can imagine, it's going to quickly come down to arguments about what is in fact, quote unquote, necessary in the public interest. So let's say it is found to be illegal. What would then happen? Well, the way the provision is structured is as an exception to the prevailing rules about privacy, which is that you can't disclose the information. So there are offences under the Privacy Act for releasing information, and it will be a matter for the authorities to decide whether this is a problematic instance, and I understand that Labor has referred the matter to the AFP. Okay, so there's still questions about the legality. So let's say that that it is legal, in fact. If that's the case, does the law need to be changed? Well, it is a concerning thing to happen. I think the real concern here, as many people would instantly perceive, is that the, the potential for a real chilling effect, potentially for anyone who wants to criticise really any federal government agency or department to fear that they will have their personal information leaked to, to the media and used against them in some way. Sarah, do you think that Centrelink was in fact correcting the record, as they said, or was it sort of exacting revenge? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know. I mean, there's a definite power balance shifting between a giant agency and one of its people. I mean, as we heard today, that came out 28 million calls from Centrelink went unanswered. So I think this is an agency that's got quite a few issues it's going to have to work through. But to release details, I mean, it, it would have been better if they just had worked it out without the media being involved. And I think this is a really interesting choice for journalists when you're handed these details, because obviously the journalist is just a vehicle for Centrelink's what they want to do, um, to then publish them. And I think that kind of raises a lot of questions for journalists, what our role is. Is our role to be just playing the role for agencies like this who want to get a point across, almost like a scare tactic? It reminded me of when Jamie Briggs, the minister... At the time, the federal minister who'd had, you know, a kind of a, almost a liaison with the department woman who then complained and then her details got leaked. I mean, you're playing with the big boys in this situation and, and the power play seems to be quite unfair. Centrelink did say that they will continue to correct the record on such occasions. So do you think that that could be construed as a threat to other journalists who might dare to criticise it in the future? Well, I mean, I don't think they should be taking it as a threat. I mean, if their details are released, they should be working through their issues, Centrelink. I mean, it's it's quite surprising that an agency like Centrelink would say that, you know, we will release your details. Um, but to, the, what, to what point? I mean, I think as a journalist, you have to think, well, is my story worth being told with the, the threat that my details may be leaked? All right, so let's move on and look at the ethics of the actual publishing of this story. Paul Malone has since said that he stands by his story. Joe, do you think that he should have published it? Well, maybe, maybe not. But one thing that struck me when I, I looked into it was that there seemed to be some problems with the information that he had actually presented 
as provided to him by Centrelink. And it seemed as though once he'd received the information, he didn't then go back to the subject, Ms Fox, and check his facts. So in the end, what you have is a couple of instances of what look like either material errors or material omissions because he didn't then go and get her side of the story. So it's it seemed quite problematic to me that in the end what you have is quite poor journalism and that this basic fact-checking never happened. Moreover, it's some days on now, we haven't seen a correction from the Canberra Times on on the issues that have been disputed. So it, it seems that, you know, even at a very basic level of, of the kind of fact-checking you expect journalists to carry out, that there was poor practice here. You mentioned that there's been no comment from Fairfax. And in fact, Fairfax's own code of conduct says that we will strike a balance between the right of the public to information and the right of individuals to privacy. Sarah, do you think that they've struck that balance here? Well, as a former member of Fairfax, I don't want to criticise my old company, but I agree with Joe that there seemed to be a lack of acknowledgement of you know going back to this woman and saying can we just check this I mean that's the basic tenets of journalism I mean I don't think we can criticize a whole company based on journalist actions but if I was doing this story and I got a drop from Centrelink and said these are all the woman's details I'd a feel a little bit uncomfortable that I have such sensitive information but b go back to the woman she's already vocal you say look Centrelink's actually given me this and showed me this is this true let's get some balance in this story so I mean, I, I, yeah, I definitely think that there were some steps missed in this journalism. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Olivia Rosenman and I'm talking to Joe Lennon, Sarah White, and we have Ben Doherty, who is joining us from Guardian Australia. Delightedly. Good evening, everybody. Hello, Ben. Mark Zuckerberg has written an almost 6,000-word-long manifesto that describes his vision for the future. And considering Facebook now has almost 2 billion people using it as a source for much of their information, Zuckerberg's vision inevitably has repercussions for the future of news media and journalism. Zuckerberg's post outlined five qualities of his ideal global community namely a community that is safe, inclusive, supportive, civically engaged, and most importantly for the media, well-informed. Zuckerberg acknowledges the problems of fake news and the filter bubble. He writes, quote, A strong news industry is critical to building an informed community. Giving people a voice is not enough without having people dedicated to uncovering new information and analysing it. It seems like Zuckerberg has finally given in and is admitting that Facebook is more than just a tech company as has been the defence for so long. Last week, we also saw reports that Facebook's head of news partnerships, Campbell Brown, has been holding off-the-record meetings with the heads of large news organisations, including The New Yorker, Vox and USA Today. Ben, let me start with you. Some might say that Zuckerberg thinks he can save journalism and this is his blueprint for saving it. Do you buy it? Do you think he's really interested in engaging as perhaps the world's biggest media organisation or is this really just lip service? Look, I think his intentions appear to be good here and it's very hard to know. I I think it's a very idealistic document, um, as you say, very long, um, uh, quite comprehensive and sort of reminiscent almost of a kind of early Julian Assange, this idea around the, the free flow of information and a community of, of, of connected global citizens. I think I think there's a really interesting idea. I think he will come up against the realities of, of resistance to his his new 
sort of format, it, it, it seems to be that there is an underlying assumption in, in, in what he's proposing here that Facebook is the platform on, on which everything happens. And I, I think there might be elements of the World Wide Web that might be resistant to that. But look, I, I think Facebook as a media company is a reality now and no one can really argue that in terms of advertising dollars. They are, they are soaking up you know, extraordinary amounts, you know, 98 cents of every dollar, 99 cents of every dollar we hear. Um, and it is a place where so many people get their news to sort of pretend that Facebook is, is disappearing or is not a significant player is, is just not a realistic position to take. So the fact that news organisations like my own are in partnership with, uh, with Facebook in, in, in certain elements um, and in discussions with them, I, I think is, is a sort of realistic assessment that this is a very, very significant player in the global media scene. I mean, you could almost read the manifesto to mean that Zuckerberg's ambition for Facebook is to, in fact, subsume all of the functions traditionally carried out by the news media and that this is really the beginning of that final death knell for journalism. Joe, what do you reckon? Well, that's a big call, Olivia, and I don't know that I can step in and predict which way it'll go one way or the other. But it's um, as a blueprint, as Ben, ben was saying, this is a very broad-ranging document, a very long document, but it's very thin on detail. And if you actually want to get the details, more of that can be found in, in some other places. There was a separate post called the Facebook Journalism Project that was put up separately in January, which announced a commitment to work with news publishers on product development. So there's, there is a bit more substance floating around out there, but it's not necessarily in this, in this document, which, as, as Ben says, has very much this manifesto feel. Some people out there are calling it the Mark Manifesto. If I might just jump back in, Joe makes a really good point that journalism is more than sort of being a content provider or a producer. My, my teeth are on edge when I, when I sort of hear people talk about content and, and these sort of things. There are responsibilities in journalism that go beyond just producing content and generating clicks and these sort of things. There, there is a democratic function that journalism performs, you know, that role of the, uh, of, of the fourth estate in a, in a democratic society. And I, I think that Facebook's beginning to understand that journalism is more than just making things and putting them up online. There, there, there is a sense of responsibility that media companies have upheld for hundreds of years that, that goes along with journalism. It is a much broader responsibility and it is, it is integral to the, to the functioning of, of, of any free society, any democracy. So I know that, that might sound idealistic for me, but I, I think that element of journalism needs to be recognised, that it's not just a product. It's not just content. Right. And I was going to say too, that correspondingly, I think it's about time for some media companies dealing with Facebook to be a little bit savvier when they walk into the room and cut some of the deals that Facebook is is setting up with these media organisations too. I've spoken to some tech experts who are surprised at the naivety of some media companies in, in cutting these deals with Facebook. So I think it's also about time for media companies to understand that their own interests are not coextensive with Facebook's. Facebook is its own corporate entity with its own profit and business model that is in some ways complementary to, but in some ways opposed to, as we know, the business model of mainstream or, shall we say, major masthead organizations. I think that's really interesting. When you talk about cutting deals, we might start to see some real deals being cut, but what's happened up until now is that it's just been a competition for advertising dollars and you see 85% of advertising revenue online go through Facebook and Google. So the news organizations just don't really have much to work with. 
maybe a different approach, and this is something that was suggested by Emily Bell, who writes for the Columbia Journalism Review. Instead of waxing lyrical about building a global community, Mark Zuckerberg should, in fact, just invest some money in quality journalism, maybe make a $1 billion endowment to independent journalism sources. Ben, what do you think about that? Initially, I'm look. I I think investment in journalism is a great thing, and I think I think money for you know journalism costs money to do and and, and costs money to do well. So so there's there there is a need for that. I mean, the issue of it, it always goes back to, and this has forever been the, the case that whoever you know who pays the piper calls the tune. Are we now sort of FacebookNews.com and 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 we're writing stories that are agreeable to Facebook, that are amenable to Mark Zuckerberg's view of the world? Um, it doesn't strike me as being particularly independent if it's funded by one person or one. One company. The manifesto said that Facebook stands for bringing us closer together and building a global community. But Facebook is famously responsible for reinforcing the filter bubble, which keeps us all very divided. So what would it take for Facebook to be a tool that acts as an, as an effective online tool that informs us and unites us rather than divides? Yeah, I was actually talking about this with friends this morning, how we used to share our, you know, how we were feeling and what we were doing a lot more in the, the early days of Facebook, which would have been 10 years ago. But I think people are so worried now about their privacy and about people, you know, knowing what's happening in other people's lives that we're, we're all scared now to post and tell everyone what we're doing. So I love their, that they call it social infrastructure and supportive communities because, you know, studies have shown that people who use social media more and more are getting more and more lonely because this idea of the connected community is gone. So I guess they'd have to pair it back and actually go back to the original Facebook model, which was a lot more private and secure. And I, you know, As a user, I felt a lot safer using it 10 years ago than I do now. The manifesto describes utopia where people aren't divided, as we've said. And I'm wondering, do you think that we would have seen this manifesto written if Hillary Clinton had been elected as US president? Um, well, no. I mean, I mean, I think, yes, we, we still would have seen it no matter who was in, because already before Trump came in, it was already very divisive. But um, I think more and more we're seeing this happening, so it's good that it was written. But I feel like regardless of the US election, that still would have been in the works. So- I think I think Whitey makes a, a very good point there, that, that the election of, of Donald Trump revealed the fissures in, you know, in, 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 in American society and, and those global divisions, re- re- revealed the divisions that were already there. It didn't create any new ones, but it, it was just illumination, I, I suppose, for the disaffection and division that was already there and, and kind of made it starkly apparent, I suppose. On ad revenue, this has come up before. I mean, just going back a step, it's it's pretty remarkable to see the hubris of this document kind of waxing lyrical about civic connection and engagement from a company that has pretty persistently avoided actually booking its ad revenue in the countries where it earns that income but wants to kind of offshore that revenue in a way that our own domestic media companies can't or don't do in order to avoid paying tax on that on that revenue so at a kind of really basic level of of civics there's this kind of disconnect here for me between the amazing you know high-flown rhetoric of the mark manifesto and the reality of the way his company operates in society and in the world and i think joe i think joe that goes to a really good point when, when we were talking about independence before if if, if mark zuckerberg is is funding you know, global journalism, what freedom is there to write stories about profit shifting and, and, and base erosion and, and all of these sort of tax, avoidance, uh, 
tax avoidance schemes. Absolutely. The kind of stories that, that Fairfax, for example, has run here in the last 12 or 18 months. It's undoubtedly true, the effect that Facebook has had on, on the global media landscape. Looking at it from the other point of view, from the consumer, do you think that Facebook has in fact broken us as, as news consumers? There was a study in 2015 that found that our attention span had fallen to eight seconds, which was down 12 seconds from the year 2000. I'm wondering if our reliance on a constantly updating feed, on videos that will give us a message in 30 seconds, are we actually no longer capable of absorbing all of the, the positives of quality journalism? I think we're definitely capable. I think there's been studies that have shown that long-form journalism is coming back into, you know, like a, a Facebook-style version. But, yeah, I mean, Facebook, it also gives you that gratification. Like when you see you've got 20 notifications, you do get a little thrill. Well, I do. <laughs> and I feel like they constantly try and reward you for constantly sharing and updating and I know I did a, a Facebook Live video the other day and Facebook was constantly saying, you're doing a really good job, Sarah. Keep going. You're, you're getting followers. You've got four <laughs> people watching. And they, now it's right, it's gone to five. Wow. You know, it was quite funny because they, they want you to be constantly updating and they encourage you as a user to do really well at that. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Olivia Rosenman and I'm speaking with Ben Doherty, Joe Lennon and Sarah White. German startup Openary has just announced it is launching in the US and it's promising to revolutionise audience engagement. What is it? Well, to use the company's own language, Openary is an audience engagement and insights platform. Basically, it's a tool that allows journalists to embed an interactive widget that asks the reader a question and then gets her to indicate her response on a scale. We'll put a link on our Facebook page so you can see an illustration. Openery has been quite successful in Europe. It's scored partnerships with organisations such as The Guardian, The Independent, Der Spiegel and Huffington Post in the UK and Germany. They claim that their platform engages 25 million Europeans. In a post on Medium last week, Openry's newly appointed head of US growth said, we think that newsrooms have to start conversation and not just drive clicks and page views. It's in conversation with one another that we can begin bridging divides, understanding each other and building engaged and loyal communities. But the comment sections at the bottom of news articles where these kinds of conversations have traditionally taken place have long been pretty horrible places where it's basically the complete opposite of understanding and meaningful engagement. Joe, is this a good idea? Do you think Openary can really fix audience engagement? Well, I don't know about that, but I love this. I think it's really charming. I like everything about it. I like this brother and sister founding duo, Cornelius and Pia Ray, I think. And my first question really is like, why is my name not as cool as theirs? But this is such a nice story. They got this off the ground and then pretty quickly got it picked up in a load of, of different uh, really high-quality outlets. And I think the reason for that, as you say, is that we've seen the really valuable and scarce, precious time of that reporters have being sucked into the hole of, of moderating comments, sometimes for very little reward or gain. And um, if, if this is being pitched as an alternative to having that kind of valuable time spent on jobs like that, then I think that this is tremendous. Sarah, do you think that it's maybe a bad idea to ask someone who's just reading a news article their opinion about it? It might encourage them to form opinions even when they're not really very informed? Uh, I, no, I don't think it's a bad 
idea, but I do worry that some news organisations would look at that and if all their readers are of a certain viewpoint, then they'll start channeling all their stories of that viewpoint. I think that can sometimes get really dangerous. I did hear someone recently say, well, all our listeners want to listen to this, so we're just going to keep giving it that to them. And I think you've got to strike that balance between, as a news organisation, saying, well, actually, we think this is important, and this strikes our values, rather than just being dictated by your readers. Ben, just in 30 seconds, do you think this is just a gadget to try and get people to spend longer on article pages? No, I don't think it's a gadget. Look, I, I think I think revolutionised is probably a little strong, but I, I think this is another form of engagement, and I, I think I think we I think the world is getting very used to the fact that the journalism is now a two way street. It, it used to be very very much one way, um, but but now people are are, are willing to you know comment uh, below the line as they say in stories, and, and and this is just another format for it. I think one of the elements I, I, I quite like having a tinker around with this today was the the sort of filter buster, the the story that that comes from a completely different angle that, that you're presented with as, as a way to see an opposing side, I think is a really healthy thing because as, um, as Whitey and Joe have said, people get sucked into that, that sort of reinforcement of your worldview by, by, by just reading stories from a certain perspective. All right. Well, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Thank you very much to my guest, Ben Doherty from Guardian Australia. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Olivia. And Sarah White from ABC. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast and stay in touch on Facebook and Twitter. My name is Olivia Rosenman and you can catch us at the same time next week.